This morning, uh, it's a real pleasure to welcome to our pulpit today uh, Dr. Peter Loback. Peter is the president of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. It says California there. Uh, there is a Westminster spinoff in California, but that's not where uh, P- Peter is located. Uh, as Peter has traveled his career, he's served as a pastor over 30 years. He's a professor in historical theology and now president of the seminary. Uh, Peter is married to Debbie, has two grown daughters. And uh, Peter, we thank you so much for coming all the way from Philadelphia uh, to be here and uh, be part of our congregation. And we look forward to your ministry here thank this morning. You, God bless. What a treat. Yeah. Let's welcome. Good to see you. Well, the music was extraordinarily uplifting. My heart is filled with joy. Thank you for the gift of letting me worship with you on this Lord's Day. What a beautiful facility, and uh, Chicago has lived up to my expectations. It always has a few late cloud effects. I come from Cleveland, so I understand all about this, you know. (laughs) But it's nice to be here with you today. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in God's Word to the Old Testament book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 33 in Genesis 18. We're going to read it in a minute, but let's keep in mind a little bit of the background as to how we come to this text. We all recognize that Abraham is one of the most extraordinary personages of the world history and particularly of the biblical faith. His name, as it comes to its full form, means the father of nations. His faith drew together every believer in Jesus Christ, the entire Jewish tradition, and his ministry as one who followed God is still the model for us. And so the book of Hebrews will use Abraham as the great model of faith. Paul the apostle will say Abraham's faith is what brought righteousness. And so we think about this extraordinary person, just a few facts. Do you remember how he was called to go to a land he'd never been before? The Lord said, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And he had the faith to get up and leave Ur the Chaldees and go to a distant, unknown place, taking what he had with him across the ancient fertile crescent. It was a a long, difficult journey. We can admire that because... Some of us have had to make those kind of moves. We've had to get up and go to some place we've never been before. And we know how hard it is when we uproot from family and things we know, and we have to go to some place we've never been. Well, Abraham did that. And we know the story of his extraordinary character. He was a man that as he began to be more and more successful There was so much possessions between him and his family member Lot that they had to separate because the soil could not care for their flocks. They had to go different ways. And it would have been easy for Abram to say, I'm the senior citizen here. I'm the one God has called. Lot, you go there, and I'm going to go here. We understand that. Seniority has its perks. But that's not the way it was. Abraham so trusted God that he looked at his younger family member Lot and said, listen, you decide where you want to go. You choose. Whether you want to go to the city of Plains or stay here, and I will move. 
Now, have you ever had someone sit in your pew at church and you said, get out of there, that's my seat? We fight over pews. He gave away his country to his family. You talk about a magnanimous spirit. This is extraordinary. And then, of course, young Lot gets in trouble. He gets whisked away by some enemy kings. Instead of Abraham saying, I told you so, you weren't man enough to take it, what does he do? He gathers together his own small army, and he becomes a warrior, and he goes and rescues his nephew and brings him back safely, and he doesn't take the spoils of war. He gives him back what was his. He did it just out of love. Now, wait a second. This guy's pretty extraordinary. And on top of all of that, it's not just that God came along once and spoke to him and said, now, listen, you're going to go to a place I'm going to show you. God actually comes to him. And you remember that great scene where the Lord comes and he says, I want you to take some animals and I want you to split them right from the top of their head through their torso, right through their tail, and lay them on the ground from big animals down to little animals, and it's going to be a pathway of blood. And Abram, you're not going to be able to walk through this path. You're not good enough. I alone will do it. And in that great theophany, manifestation of God in history, a smoking pot, a fiery furnace passes through the parts as Abram's in a deep sleep, and the Lord makes a covenant, a declaration that I will be your God and you and yours will be my people. And, of course, this happened after that wonderful moment where it's great to preach in a place like this where you're looking up into the heavens on the inside. We have these bright lights up here. Imagine when there was no light pollution in the ancient Near East, and God brings Abram out, and he says, you've been wanting to have a child for a long time, and you're never having one, and you're so upset. I'm going to finally give you one. And he says, take a look at the stars up there, Abram. All of these are going to be your children. Now, that was pretty extraordinary to hear that. And you know what it's like to long for something and never have it happen and still have hope that it might. God gave him that promise. He couldn't even have one child, and, and that night he could see the Milky Way in all of its glory, and the stars were innumerably great. And he believed God. He believed that what God told him, which was utterly unthinkable and impossible for himself, would be true. And when he believed God, God credited it to him as righteousness. He said, Abram, I'm not going to say you're right with me because you got up and left or because you rescued Lot or because you were so magnanimous with him. Instead, I am giving this to you simply because you received it as a gift. You believed my word and you've trusted it. Well, we know that Abram will become a father of a nation, circumcision, the sign of the covenant as given in the Old Testament. Now, it's not that Abraham was a perfect man. Do you remember his wife was so beautiful that he had a pact with her? Whenever they came to a strange town, it was to be spoken that she is my sister, which we, she technically was, a half-sister, a little twisting of the truth. But he knew that he might get knocked off so somebody might steal this woman and make her his wife. It wasn't perfect. 
but he was a great man. But ultimately, it was by faith that God gave him righteousness. Now, because of this intimate relationship that God had with Abraham, the Lord revealed to him his purpose. We don't know always what God is going to do, what he's about. The mysteries of providence in our lives are great. And yet God comes and reveals his intention if he finds it to be true that the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, that had turned against the standards of his will so greatly, if that was true, he was going to come and judge them. But he said, Abraham is my friend. I must go and tell him what I'm going to do. Now, would you come in and let's listen in to the secret disclosure that God is giving to this extraordinary man, the father of faith. We find it in Genesis 18 and verses 16 to 33. It says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. 
When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Would you pray with me for a moment? Lord, we have read your word. We've thought about its context. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would now be our teacher, that you take these ancient, extraordinary truths and make them to be real and personal and living and alive and powerful in our own hearts. And all this we pray through the glorious and matchless name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As we think about this story, we recognize something amazing is going on here. There are three men visiting with Abraham, but one of them is the Lord. He has come in human form. It is almost as if it is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Messiah. Some would call this a Christophany where Christ, who is yet to come, has already entered into history, and he is standing as that one special star, that one special seed that had been promised to Abraham. And he is the Lord who is going to judge. Now, as a human appearance, he has what theologians called an anthropology, Pathism or anthropomorphism. You need to come to Westminster and learn some theology. I'll teach you some good words. They'll impress your friends. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is taking on himself a human likeness and feeling and action and knowledge and appearance. Did God really need to go down and check out what Sodom and Gomorrah was like? Isn't he the one that knows the end from the beginning? Isn't he omniscient? Doesn't he know the number of hairs on our heads and every day in our life before there's one of them? But God is coming down to introduce who he is to the father of faith. And he says, I have to find out if the complaints that are going up from the earth about the sin of the cities of the plain are true. And as this goes on, we see an extraordinary moment where it almost seems as if Abraham is more merciful than God. Isn't that an amazing thing? We think about God who so loved the world that he gave his son. Here is God coming down, and he hears about human sinfulness in the cities of the plain. And as a result of that, Abraham is pleading for the cities, and God seems to be hell-bent on bringing judgment against them. It's almost like we want to be on Abraham's side, not God's side. In fact, we know a little bit about that. You've heard it said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's an interesting line. It evokes lots of feelings and ideas and politics and sociological things. And it's easy to talk about the sin over there and those bad cities And it seems like Abraham is so concerned for them and God is convinced he's going to judge them. And as this dialogue goes on, one of the things we discover is that the father of the Jewish people and the Reformed people shows his negotiating skills. 
He says, now, Lord, what if there are 50 people? Will you destroy the whole city and the 50 are going to perish with them? That doesn't seem right. And as he goes through this argument from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10, he's using what logicians call the argument of the beard. Now, I'm looking out there. Do I see any beards this morning? Anybody want to raise your hand and be a volunteer and stand up and show off your beard? Here you go. Stand up. Let's look. There's a nice beard right here. There's one. There's another one right Look at it. Okay. Aren't those great? Look at that. Give them a round of applause. All right. (laughs) They had the courage to be seen. All right. Now, how many hairs does it take to have a beard on your chin? Does it take 100? Well, then why not 99? Come on. Just one hair. Okay, 99. Why not 90? Come on, it still looks like, okay, 90. Well, why not 80? Oh, okay, 80. Why not 70? Okay, now that sounds so masculine, it's too male-centered. Let's change it. This is probably still too masculine, but I'll use this one. How about, we'll call it the argument of the spaghetti. To have a bowl of spaghetti, how many strands of spaghetti need to be in the bowl? 100? Well, why not 99? Why not 80? There got to be at least 500 for me, especially after preaching twice on Sunday. But here's the point. There's an argument that keeps on descending. And it's almost as if it went like this. Abraham said, now listen, I know Lot's in the city, and I want to save Lot. I've already rescued him more than once. And he's got a wife. She's got to be a believer. And I know he has a couple daughters And they must have married believers, and they probably have had a home Bible study where they've had at least four people in the discipleship group that have come to faith. I've got them down to 10. That's enough, and I can spare the family. Well, you know, you know the story, don't you? The cities of the plain are destroyed. And by the time the story is done, as Lot is fleeing, Lot's wife turns back, because she really doesn't have faith. Only the daughters go along and the family, whatever there was, didn't come. And then even there's that really sad story of the creation of two of the perpetual enemies of Israel through the incest of Lot with his daughters. Oh, what a tragic story. It's almost as if the Lord said, you know, when you get all the way to the end, There are none righteous. No, not one. No, not one. The theology was actually kind of right. Well, Lord, shouldn't the righteousness of others count for others who are sinners? That's substitutionary righteousness. The righteousness of someone standing for another. But the problem was... Abraham really didn't know who he was standing with. We actually understand who this one is when we go from this text that were read today to the very next chapter of Revelation 5. Do you remember the beautiful antiphonal reading? Do you remember that scene? The Ancient of Days is seated upon his throne. He has a scroll in his hand. It's sealed with seven seals. 
and the call goes out, is there anyone righteous who can open the seals to take it out of the hand of the a great glorious God of the universe? And no one was found righteous, not in heaven, not in earth, not under the earth. And John says, I wept and I wept because no one was righteous. And then someone says, stop weeping, John. Behold, there's someone who is overcome, who's triumphed. He is worthy. He can come and take the scroll out of the hand of God and open it. And John looks because he hears there is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He wants to see this overcomer, but when he turns his gaze to him, he sees a lamb, not a lion, a lamb standing, though it had been slain, a sacrifice who is raised, triumphant, ascended, who is now in the presence of God, and he is worthy, and he is able to take the scroll because he is righteous. This was the very one that was standing before Abraham. And Abraham was pleading the righteousness of 10 people, 50 people, somebody out there. And the Scriptures say, there's none righteous, no, not one, but there is one indeed who is righteous. It is Jesus Christ, the Lord. He has overcome. And his cross, his empty tomb, his blood that has been shed takes away sin. And by trusting in him, we become righteous. And this one alone can rescue the city. Indeed, it's for the sake of one and only one. There is no other mediator between God and man whereby we must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through me. For God indeed so loved this world that he gave his Son, that if anyone would believe in him, they will not perish, but they shall have everlasting life. But now to make this extraordinary story become what it really needs to mean, what it needs to mean to you and to me, is to ask, where is the city of Sodom? Well, you say, well, it's on the East Coast. No, it's on the West Coast. Now, you need to understand, it's right here in my heart. I am Sodom. I am Gomorrah. And so are you and you and you too. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all live in the city of Sodom. We all are people under the judgment of God, and we need his grace. It is not out there that the sin is. It is in here that it is. And unless that Savior, that one alone Savior, for the sake of this one comes to us, we will perish. Now, it's really hard to preach hellfire and brimstone and be a friendly visiting pastor. So I want to use a cheat sheet. Can I do that? Okay. I'm going to be reading from a man named George Whitfield. Ever hear of him? Billy Graham said he's the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen after Jesus Christ. Okay. This is from his sermon called The Method of Grace. Now, remember, when he was in Philadelphia, my city, Benjamin Franklin figured out he could speak easily to 30,000 people without a microphone. Imagine hearing these words with the voice of a powerful preacher who could shake this building. 
by the natural gift that God had given, coupled with the supernatural unction of his preaching. Here's what he said. But what shall I say to you that have got no peace with God? And these are perhaps the most of this congregation. It makes me weep to think of it. Most of you, if you examine your hearts, must confess that God never yet spoke peace to you. You are children of the devil if Christ is not in you. If God has not spoken peace to your heart, poor soul, what a cursed condition are you in. I would not be in your case for 10,000, thousand worlds. Why? You are just hanging over hell. What peace can you have when God is your enemy, when the wrath of God is abiding upon your poor soul? Awake then, you that are sleeping in a false peace. Awake, ye carnal professors, ye hypocrites, that go to church, receive the sacrament, read your Bibles, and never felt the power of God upon your hearts. You that are formal professors, you that are baptized heathens, awake, awake, and do not rest on a false bottom. Blame me not for addressing myself to you. Indeed, it is out of love to your souls. I see you are lingering in your Sodom and wanting to stay there. But I come to you as the angel did to Lot, to take you by the hand. Come away, my dear brethren. Fly, fly, fly for your lives to Jesus Christ. Fly to a bleeding God. Fly to a throne of grace and beg of God to break your hearts. Beg of God to convince you of your actual sins. Beg of God to convince you of your original sin. Beg of God to convince you of your self-righteousness. Beg of God to give you faith and to enable you to close with Jesus Christ. Oh, you that are secure, I must be a son of thunder to you. And know that God may awaken you, though it be with thunder. It is out of love indeed that I speak to you. Now we stop there, and I conclude by just applying these simple words that we heard from George Whitfield. Some of you are offended that I dared call you a sinner as a great church member. You said, I'm offended. I guess preachers are to offend people once in a while. But did you hear his argument? He said, do you realize that by your birth, by your original sin, you enter this world already separated from God? You cannot make yourself right by anything you do until you deal with what you've already inherited. We hate to think of it, but the generations that are unborn are already in debt in the United States. We were born with a debt from Adam, and we cannot pay it. How will you deal with it? Well, you say, I just don't believe in that imputed sin stuff. That's old-fashioned. I don't want any part of it. All right. Well, then what about your actual sin? All right, let's go through the Ten Commandments. Has God always been first in your life? Come on. When you were a kid, did you always honor your mother and father? Come on. All right, did you ever play golf on Sunday, especially when the Summer Light Series came to town? I can't get you to this Sunday, but maybe on the other ones. Okay, now, you live in Chicago. It's got to be hard when someone drives up to his office with his new Mercedes-Benz or BMW, and you say, why can't I? That's called coveting, and that's a sin. You say, oh, come on. God grades on a curve. Three out of ten ain't bad. I'm pretty good. Okay, well, Whitfield says, lastly, have you always given your best to God? Have you given God everything? When the offering plate came by today, did you really give your best? He said, well, look it. I put in $100 today. Well, why didn't you give 101 
This is the argument of the beard in reverse. It's good, good for stewardship, by the way. He said, well, that's all right. I gave 1000 today. Well, why not 2000 Well, I just tithed on the family estate. I gave $20,000 to the church today. Well, why did you stop at a tithe? Why didn't you give 20% to the church today? Did you really give God the very best? What if God says, you must be perfect even as I am perfect? That's what Jesus says. Today, as we conclude, if God does not judge you, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's the beauty of the gospel. He so loved his people that he judged Jesus Christ as the one and only one who can take away the wrath of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is He your Savior? Has your sin been cleansed by His blood? Have you fled from your home and heart of rebellion against God and said, Jesus, I need you? Today I invite you to pray for this Christ to come afresh into your life and to know His grace. Lord, we come to a bleeding God. We come to the only one who can save us. And we recognize the Sodom is our own souls. Would you remove the guilt from us, O you who alone are righteous? For the sake of one, you can save every city of every soul. Today, Lord Jesus, come into our hearts and forgive us. Help us to, in gratitude, live for you. All this we ask for the merits of Christ alone. In Jesus' name. Amen.